0: Initiating neural engine. In
1: three, two, one. Welcome back to the drift space, my baby little trekklings. I'm your host, Jr. (laughs) Trekklings. I was going to say uh, Kirkling loving Spock suckers, but. Kirkling? We've, I think even with
0: Ling on it is just kind of. <laughs> ah, Spockling.
1: Spocklings.
0: Uh, you Sulu-lings. Wait. Oh, no. He's Both Japanese. Lie. He's Japanese. I forgot. All right. I'm Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm G
2: i'm rebecca what just happened
1: (laughs) are you rebecca lean art is what just happened (laughs) professionals because i have a mic right okay so today (laughs) we are uh continuing our trek along with the crew of the enterprise our uh, last time we did trek we talked search for spock this week we are joined by a very special guest from the Monster Island Film Fault, who's going to help us take this voyage home. So, Voyage Home came out in 1986, which is kind of cool, because that's the year I was born. And this is one of my more enjoyable Star Trek original series movies. The film opens up with us on Vulcan, where Spock is trying to reorganize his mind and get back to ship condition. So the film opens up with a probe heading to Earth. And on its way, it just seems to shut down every passing starship. When it finally gets to Earth, it starts relaying this signal that nobody can translate. Luckily for Spock and crew, they can translate it. And what happens to be, guys, space whales. Space (laughs) whales. Space (laughs) whales. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> so the plan is go to the 80s, get some whales, come back and save the Earth. Fairly, uh, fairly typical for a Star Trek movie, wouldn't you say? Well, That's,
3: we've s- <laughs> seen this so many times, so before. Many times
1: before. I'm, I'm,
3: I'm <laughs> kind of bored with this. It, it might as well be a trope. The old take whales from the the past and bring them to the future. God, oh. <laughs> Real original.
1: <laughs> I haven't seen this much originality in a truck movie since uh, search, search for Spock.
0: <laughs> you know, initially, uh, Leonard Nimoy, he was kind of hung up on... They, they were trying to figure out what they need to go back into the past for, and, and uh, Nimoy was initially hung up on a like a plant. That they had to go back for that was extinct in the future, for like municipal purposes and whatnot. But they didn't think that was dramatic enough, and uh, I think Still it was. Wales. Yeah, it was whales. Well, it, uh, I think I think it was William Shatner that was part of uh You know, he was part of a Greenpeace at the time, and he was actually uh, very much in like involved in like activism for whales and stuff like that. So uh, I don't I don't want to say that he came up with the idea, but we he was he was one of the people who supported the idea heavily
1: All that to say is I'm I'm a fan of this movie just because I like going off the beaten track every once in a while and like I said earlier this is not your stereotypical tr- Star Trek movie in fact I think you I could qualify this more as a comedy than a Trek movie
0: Yeah no I completely agree with that statement
3: absolutely It almost reminds me of a buddy cop movie It really In does. a way yeah if Trek had a buddy cop movie, I think this would be that, that movie.
0: Well, there's a tremendous uh, focus on character in this movie. You know, uh, everyone ends up doing a little bit more. Uh, they get to kind of flex their their acting abilities a little bit more. Everyone gets more screen time. Uh, you know, it it's interesting to me how much confidence Paramount had in Nimoy after Search for Spock. Mm-hmm. You know, they... They, they brought him in after the, its success. They told him they wanted to do another one. They said, the trading wheels are off. And that was the exact quote that Nimoy got, uh, which is a wonderful thing to hear, right? You know, N- Nimoy had said that he felt tremendous amount of pressure on Search for Spock. The The studio was breathing down his neck, his peers, his co-stars were sort of testing him. He was hogtied to budgetary constraints, old sets and models. He, he was uh, questioned for bringing in Christopher Lloyd. And then, of course, you know, he delivers after all of that, and they tell him he gets more creative freedom to make the movie he wants to make. And he said he enjoyed making Star Trek for for way more because of that freedom and that trust. Uh, But as always, the studio still had a mandate, and the mandate was it had to be a time travel movie. (laughs) There there
1: had to be time travel. (laughs) I mean, Christopher Lloyd wasn't a previous movie. Why not? You know, yeah. Doc right. Brown, you, know, Doc, you know, you know, the old saying, Doc Brown is Klingon, bird of prey.
0: Right, right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Classic.
2: I want to point out just a little tiny uh, tidbit or oopsie I, fa- I found in the film. You know, the part where uh, Chekhov was captured by, by the Navy after Uhuru um, beamed up. So he points the phaser at, at the guards. And he said, "Don't move, or I will stun." And he couldn't. And he couldn't shoot. And he couldn't shoot them. He uh, there was like, oh, must be radiation interference. So he just, instead of taking the phaser with him as he runs, he just tosses it in the hands of one of the guards. You don't think that would have had, I don't know,
0: some sort of an effect on the timeline? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Okay, so they they decided to get that out of the way. Pretty early on in the movie, you know, they were like, "Okay, you you can't change anything. You go back in time, but you you don't really change anything. What's happened has happened." And I think one of the brilliant things is uh, when Kirk sells his broken pair of glasses. Yeah, that Bones gives him in Wrath of Khan, and uh, and Spot goes, "Isn't not that, that the pair of glasses that McCoy got you for for your birthday?" And Kirk says, "Yes, and will be again." That's the
1: beauty of it. <laughs> <laughs> which makes me I, it, I mean this is the problem with time travel if McCoy's with him in this future doesn't that mean that like when they go back to the past like he will not he he will remember everything so why would he give him the glasses
0: well McCoy wasn't there when he
1: sold the glasses right but M- McCoy is with him in this time frame in <clears throat> this timeline Yeah. so when they travel back how does he get the Glasses again because, like, McCoy himself has skipped over that time, like, the event has already happened. We're no, getting no, into we're, time travel, yeah. We're, we're, we're
0: getting, getting,
3: getting
4: time done. travel, we're getting <laughs> this, is <laughs> <not> <laughs> a dangerous, yeah. this is a danger.
3: <laughs> this is what happens when you take a little too much LDS in the 60s.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the one note on time travel I did like was uh, when Scotty is showing him the new formula for the clear. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. aren't we changing Mm -hmm. the future by telling him how do we know he isn't the one who invented it oh yeah (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) I like that one (laughs) but I think what I really enjoy about this movie is the fact that when when the movie opens up you know Spock's taking the test to uh, get his mind back in ship shape working condition and the fact that he travels back to the 80s and learns humanity from the 80s. Yeah, it's the- <laughs> <is>
2: amazing. <laughs>
1: the colorful Smart- metaphors, smartest race in the entire galaxy with an 80s mind. <laughs> colorful metaphors.
0: It really is so much lighter than the last three films. You know, Nimoy had had said he wanted this movie to be a lot lighter than the last two films, and and said, uh, and I quote, "It's it's not a message picture, right." Meaning, he didn't set out to have a major overarching theme that played out uh, in the narrative, like you know Star Trek two II and three. He just focused on the characters and the story. But I feel like I don't know. I feel like movies say a lot more as time ages them, which is kind of funny about this movie because the movie already aged much of what we're seeing due to time travel. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> time travel. Also, I, I just I have a hard time believing there aren't talking points in a screenplay co-written by Nicholas Meyer, who wrote and directed Wrath of Khan, you know? Yeah. And, and and I see lots of stuff regarding xenophobia and distrust since, you know, Chekhov is a Russian on board a nuclear vessel <laughs> in, in, in the Cold we War. We are looking
1: for nuclear vessels.
0: <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we have the issue of preserving a nearly extinct species. And, of course, the exploration of humanity as Spock inches his way uh, to answer the question, how do you feel? And and so see, I I just I have a hard time believing a Star Trek movie doesn't have things to say. And Dave, Rebecca, you two really knocked it out of the park in terms of exploring the themes in Search for Spock. What do you two think about this one?
3: For me, I think that's kind of why I struggled finding any single interpretation mm-hmm. of it. I think there are multiple interpretations of the Voyage Home, both the movie and just the phrase like what does the voyage home actually mean you think about this from the crew's perspective at the end the crew gets to return home to the enterprise right and then you have kirk kirk is returned home as the captain of the enterprise he's finally demoted from admiral and he gets back in the captain's chair chair that's his home and also in kind of a cheeky way right the crew of the enterprise is returning home to us as the audience when they time travel back to our time thinking about this is a movie that came out in 1986 and they time travel back to the 80s they time travel back to when people are actually watching this film but for me the voyage home i mean much like i see a lot of spock in this i think spock is obvious very obviously one of the big central parts of this movie. So when I think about that and say, how does this really apply to Spock? G.J., I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about Spock trying to regain his humanity. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what home looks like for Spock. We open with that query presented by the machine Spock is using to sort of test himself and sharpen himself back on Vulcan. How do you feel? uh, Followed abruptly by this conversation with his mother about essentially how the denial of logic is the reason he stands there today. The needs of the one outweighing the needs of the many. This perplexes Spock. He doesn't get it because, because he's been neglecting the human part of himself during his reintegration on Vulcan. He's been doing great reintegrating himself with the Vulcan half of him, but it's the human side of him that he needs to get back with. So needs of the one outweighing the needs of the many that perplexes him. And throughout the film, he reconnects and understands his human side, something that he could not achieve back on Vulcan from machines, from other Vulcans. So in a sense, this is a return to self, a return to home and the big part for me is, yes, he does finally answer the question, how do you feel? But even more than that, illustrated in the final moments of this film where he's attending the hearing, not, to, not only to relay the events that unfolded, as he talked about with his mother, like, why are you going back? Oh, I, need to re- I was there. I need to tell them about it. He doesn't only do it because of that, but he does it because he wants to stand with his friends, with his family, with his shipmates. So there are a lot of interpretations of the film, but I tend to find something much more pro- profound through Spock's journey. Rebecca, what did you see?
2: Okay, give me one damn minute. Um, <laughs>
3: <laughs> one and, damn minute, Albert.
2: Okay, so when I first saw this film, um, I thought the first thing in my mind was that, oh no, we're being spoon-fed with environmentalist thumping hippie crap. Obviously, that wasn't the case and I was wrong about my former beliefs. And l- like you said, G.J., I found I found this uh, a bit more upbeat, positive, fun, funny, and an easygoing movie. And the fact that it's a Star Trek film makes it even better. If it were just another poorly pitched film idea, I doubt... Haha, <laughs> 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 yeah, here we go. I, I doubt anybody would be interested in it. So Star Trek was a good hook, no pun intended, to gather audiences and give them a bit of an eye-opener. Of course, the more I think about it, this Star Trek film isn't just about taking nature or the environment for granted. It's also it's also about facing consequences from any extreme action in general. Uh, think about it. The, the crew of the Enterprise were on Vulcan for three months after Spock was res- resurrected. Why? Because they were wanted fugitives for breaking the law, stealing the Enterprise, then blowing it up to get Spock resurrected. Now, each crew member practically threw their career and livelihoods away just to bring Spock back. Now, I'm not sure if they were told to stay on Vulcan until further notice, or, or they just chose to stay there and think about what to do next. Either way, they're left with a decision whether they should go back home and receive the just punishments they deserve, which... They eventually all agreed to do. In the exact same clothes they wore three months ago after the events of Star Trek 3. Man, those Vulcan fabric my
1: frogs. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that. Are you, are you telling me that they don't have washing machines in the future? My God!
3: They well, wash with logic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> anyway, we see more consequences being unfolded by the Klingon Empire, where the, the Klingon ambassador demanded Kirk's life as a sign of justice for the deaths of a few Klingons. Of course, that was easily countered by Ambassador Sarek, who stated the facts that it was the Klingons who drew first blood after destroying the USS Grisham and killing Kirk's son. This basically puts the Federation in an even tighter spot with the Klingon Empire, which they will have to face that consequence and outcome later on in a certain sequel. Then of course you have the twentieth century mankind's cruelty for endangering indigenous species such as the humpback whale, which would later come back to bite them in the twenty third century, when they're being invaded by a space whale. Th- thank you for telling for saying that it was a space whale, by the way.
1: <laughs> well my ori- original idea was to say it was PVC pipe with a volleyball attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> that's I don't know, that's actually kinda of better. Anyway.
2: I want to circle back uh, when Spock was talking to his mother about human flaws and feelings, and she mentions that it was because of those flawed feelings that Spock is alive today. Spock also reiterated a similar statement when humans are killing a species for financial gain was not logical. After, After learning the history about the extinction of humpback whale. So looking at this film, it talks about consequences, but it also talks about The redeeming values after mistakes have been made. Kirk, the crew, mankind from the 20th and 23rd centuries made mistakes, but out of those mistakes comes the redeeming value. And uh, and a lot of times in life, it's not always how we picture it, but it comes regardless. And
1: Rebecca just ended things.
0: Well, you know, Rebecca brought up some things I hadn't thought about was the theme of consequence. And, you know, there, it, it reminded me of this line, I believe, that I think Kirk said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, it's interesting, you know, they were out killing all these whales, and they had no idea that they were creating their own extinction by making these other whales extinct. Because in the future, there's this, you know, space whale probe, um, just, you know, shutting everything down. And so, you know, we, we have the theme of immediate consequence, which is you have the crew of the Enterprise flying back in the HMS bounty, the bird of prey, getting ready to stand trial for what they did in Star Trek three. And then you have, you know, all of humanity being responsible for the, the death of an entire species and how that came back to bite them uh, so many years later. So that was, that is interesting.
1: You don't really see uh, that like facing up to consequence until the end of the movie when they're actually on trial because I mean the f- the first instance of it hitting you in the face is well, oh, there are no whales in the 23rd century. Why are there no whales? And then when they're all standing up there, they're like, oh yeah, remember that thing we did a movie ago? We got to face up to that. Yeah,
0: we still have that. Yeah, that last.
1: <laughs> <laughs> which, which is which is one thing I enjoy about the original series movies. It's one continuing. It's basically one episode told through several movies. I mean, well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's episodic. Episodic, yeah. It's so that's it's a, it's a it's like like I said that the event that happened in Search for Spock uh, we're now being reprimanded for for it in Voyage Home. Do
0: you guys think that seeing Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock is a requirement? to enjoy the voyage home jr i don't
1: think it's requirement knowing what happened with spock is kind of required but at the same time we get that wonderful uh flashback like we always do in trek where they're at the console and we have the lovely how did they get that shot from space of the enterprise blowing up right (laughs) Uh, i love that (laughs) but but it's still it's still enjoyable on its own
3: yeah i was thinking about this as i was watching it because i've i've seen this somewhere before but voyage home is the culmination of the a trilogy of 2 through 4 when i think about that on paper i think to myself you know of course you can't just watch the the final movie in a trilogy of films you've got to see the first two but the more I think about it in the context of like what actually happens, what's with the storytelling, the narrative, the characters, what is going on here that would preclude somebody from enjoying it. And I don't think there's a whole lot that the majority of the film, it takes place in an entirely different timeline that is more easily accessible for the common viewer. So I could see how this movie could almost be an introduction to somebody that wants to figure out what Star Trek is all about.
0: Okay. Well, that's it, it's interesting because I often wonder, you know, how much, how much information is too much to make it accessible to a viewer? You know, we had the opening where we see the Enterprise being destroyed and it's explained to us, you know, what Kirk's crimes were. And they make it evident that, you know, Spock had come back to life. They don't go into details how, but they did. Uh, you know, I sit there and I think, okay, as a viewer, as a newcomer, I would be super, you know, like confused, like what in the world? Uh, I, I certainly missed a lot. But then, you know, once you get past all that baggage and into this standalone story, then then it becomes more easily accessible. The movie still has to pay off uh, everything that it sets up and some things that the prior movies set up. And that's, that's a big part of it right there.
1: Yeah, uh, like once you get past the first 10 or 15 minutes, it's it's a fairly straightforward movie where you can follow yeah. everything that's going on. Yeah, I agree. So I, I don't think the previous two movies are necessarily required reading. But once again, having seen them makes a lot more sense in context.
0: Oh, of course, of course. And again, it, it, really, it really makes that payoff more enjoyable. And this is, this movie is constantly, it, it, it's a large setup for big payoffs and small payoffs. You know, you have minor character moments. You have full-on story arcs. Um, you know, you have, my favorite example is, is with dialogue, actually, uh, especially between Kirk and Spock. Kirk has told Spock to stop using colorful metaphors to fit in because Spock just isn't very good at using profanity. And, uh, the hell then, I'm not. uh and, and then Gillian picks them up in her truck and asks, uh, you know, what, what did you mean when you said all that stuff about extinction? And before Spock can respond because he, he can't lie. Kirk chimes in, uh, he, he meant, he, he meant, uh, what you said on the tour that if things keep going the way they are, humpbacks will disappear forever. And then she retorts, uh, <laughs> Oh no, that's not what he said, farm boy Uh, (laughs) Admiral, if we were to assume Those whales are ours To do as we please We would be as guilty as those that caused Past tense Their extinction I have a photographic memory I see words And then Spock, he looks at Kirk and he he asks Are you sure this isn't time for a colorful metaphor? (laughs) 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 There's so much charm in this movie, right? There's so much wit, and I'm reeling at the stuff. And you have you have other character moments like where McCoy gives the woman the pill in the hospital. (laughs) What was a new liver?
1: And then yeah, later on, doctor gave me a new liver. (laughs) You've got
0: Spock telling his father to tell his mother, "I feel fine." You know, we talked about that, and. Dave, you brought this up because to me, this is the biggest payoff and you know where this is going. Um, This is the biggest payoff for me was the movie opened and reminded us that the Enterprise had been destroyed. Okay, this is a Star Trek movie where the Enterprise is absent. It's unheard of. It's brave. It's ballsy. But I sit through it thinking, you know, I I have this pit in my stomach knowing something's missing. It doesn't hurt the film at all, but it does build anticipation for it. And then at the very end, when the camera makes us think, oh, they're, they're going to get the Excelsior, we see the Enterprise A, another refit Constitution class, and they're so happy. And by this point, you know, the Constitution class starship is old news. They're, they're nearly 50 years old. They could have been given the Excelsior or a Miranda class ship like the Reliant. That's what the Reliant was. But they didn't want newer and more advanced. They wanted home, like you said. And Kirk looks at the Enterprise and says, gentlemen, we've come home. And that's when I realized what the voyage home was. It wasn't Earth. It was to get back to their lives, their adventures. And that's personified in the Enterprise. And they get it back. To me, it it was the most satisfying ending this film could deliver.
3: And they kind of give you a little taste of Enterprise little tease just to rem- just in case you- there was a moment when you weren't thinking about it. Yeah. Uh-huh. When Chekhov's talking to, to Kirk on the comms, and he's like, where's the nukes or, uh, where's the nuclear reactor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where, where's the, where's the, where's the reactor. And then he goes, it's the enterprise. And you just see like this smile creep on Kirk's face. Yeah. This glimmer. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was about to say, uh, the enterprise was in the movie, just, uh, more like an ancestor of the enterprise, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, I want to interject something uh, completely um, different during that time, uh, in the eighties, um, this was during the cold war, obviously at the, actually it was starting almost the conclusion of the cold war, like during, during the Reagan era and everything, um. And, and I noticed that th- they jumped uh, literally from a, a different parallel point, point in time in history ex- uh, because in the 23rd century, they're dealing with their own sort of Cold War with the Klingons. So I, I find it, uh, <laughs> it seemed eerie how both, how they picked a certain timeline that was very similar to their timeline when it came to. A problem with with another country, or in their case, another planet.
0: Yeah, another country is probably the best way to put it. Uh, another uh, political entity, another uh, force to be reckoned with. Uh, it, yeah, I, I found the juxtaposition there kind of interesting. It was an excellent comparison between you know the Cold War and the Cold War with the Klingons, which has been going on for years since the uh, the original uh, series, actually.
2: Yeah, exactly, and and the Cold War in Russia has been going on for years as well, until. Uh, I guess, 1991. Hmm. That's see, year I was born.
1: Well, I think we've hit um, a great point that we can bring in our very special guest here. All right. And uh, see what he has to say on the movie. So we are pleased as punch to have the curator of the vault himself, Nathan Martin from the Monster Island Film Vault here with us. Nathan, how the heck are you?
4: Hello, computer. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
0: Just use the keyboard.
4: Oh, it's a microphone. How quaint. <laughs> Hello, James. <laughs>
0: James. Hey, Jimmy.
4: Hey, 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 hey! Behave, you two. I don't have. I don't want to have to referee a fight this time. <laughs> Jimmy's still a little bit sore in more ways than one from losing to you in that bar fight. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, at least, at least we know who won. <laughs> you know what? I think next time my money would still be on you. <laughs> All I can say is just don't take off, Rebecca. <laughs> don't take off anybody in this. And shut up, Jimmy. Quit trying to interrupt us. Okay. It's just rude. All right. <laughs> but well, anyway, yes. Thank you. Uh, Both Jimmy and I are very happy to find out that we're Drift compatible with all y'all. And I can say that because I'm from Indiana. (laughs) 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 Yes, Jimmy, I know you'd marry Gypsy Danger if it was a woman. They've already talked about that movie. We're moving (laughs) on.
2: (laughs) I mean, technically, Gypsy Danger is a she, so.
4: (laughs) Exactly. But he's also- He's an engineer. He falls in love with machines. I fully expect him to marry an android. I'm just saying. You're from Indiana but you you only work on an island.
0: What what uh what what do you what do you do on the island, Nathan? I'm
4: a I'm a film curator. I'm in charge of the film vault on the island. Okay. All right. <laughs> I archive things in the vault. I acquire things. I watch them. I podcast about them. <laughs> I do a lot of things. <laughs>
1: So I, I, I understand that you recently uh, started season two. I
4: did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about that. What can we expect out of the uh, vault from you?
4: <laughs> well, it's going to be the year of Gamera, much to my chagrin. <laughs> oh wonderful by the monster island board of directors that i have to spend all of 2021 going over the gamera franchise because there are 12 months in a year and 12 gamera movies although if you include gamera the invincible the king of the monsters 56 version of the original movie there's 13 yeah i'm gonna have to figure out how to work that in somehow but yes, and uh, I'll also be finishing up my little series on Toho Classics this season, and I'm still trying to figure out what to do after that, because that'll be done after only a couple of months.
1: That sounds awesome. I've, I've always been a giant fan of Gamera. G introduced me to Gamera about high school, and I think I took to him more than I did Godzilla.
4: Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have a blast listening to the show, and spoiler warning for everybody, I have invited Jack back despite Jimmy's objections and you back onto the onto the show in a couple of months, so that will be fun. Well, and I know
1: it. I'm looking forward to it as long as uh
4: Jimmy behaves. <laughs> oh, calm down I don't think they're gonna tag team you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Plan
1: B. Okay. So <laughs> Don't you mean plan Z?
4: But <laughs> <laughs> Oh lord. Or Z plan <laughs> Hey, I'm I have a French surname. I can make French jokes, too. <laughs> oh my
1: god. <laughs> oh. Man. That's great. So Let's uh let's jump into the topic at hand here. Uh we're we're talking Trek simply because I've heard you mention Trek a few times on the Film Vault. So I figured uh why don't why don't you come over here and, you know, give us some Trek knowledge? <laughs> Tell us about your favorite Trek
4: movie. Uh what is my favorite Trek movie? Is that what yeah. you how, how how did you get into Star Trek? Well, Interestingly, I have actually you may be surprised by this, some of you anyway. Despite the fact that I am running a kaiju and tokusatsu podcast, my first geek love, so to speak, was actually Star Trek. I was introduced to Star Trek when I was about three and a half years old. It was through watching reruns of the show with my dad. That was quality time with dad was catching the reruns of of TOS on one of our local TV stations. And so I was exposed to it at a very, very young age. But back then, all I really understood was the Enterprise was a beautiful thing. And Captain Kirk could kick any alien's butt. Amen. (laughs) And then as I got older, I realized he could nail any woman he wanted. But, uh, you know, (laughs) keep it at E.G. (laughs) Amen. And then I started watching TNG and all of the spinoffs. The my first Trek movie is a little bit harder for me to pin down. I think it was three. All right. I think three, but it could have been this one because they reuse footage from three in this one at the beginning. So I could be conflating them. I just know it was one of those. Uh well, I mean, yeah, we talk about that a lot.
1: How they seem to recap uh, spaceship explosions from a camera That just is floating out in space <laughs> So Still trying to figure that one out Jimmy do you have any insight on that?
4: Really? Robots? You think everything's robots
1: <laughs> If you had to pick A favorite uh, Trek movie Which one would be your favorite? Two,
4: two. Not only is, two, <laughs> only is Star Trek 2 my favorite Trek movie It's my all time favorite movie period There we go
1: I mean, it's hard to debate with that. Can
4: anybody actually say they don't like Star Trek too? Jimmy's favorite Trek movie for some odd reason is the motion picture.
2: <laughs> you know, it doesn't really surprise me.
3: <laughs> you have that shot of the Enterprise that takes like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> it's called well, a movie he, shot for a reason. <laughs> although I think the motion picture took it perilously close to a
3: lust shot I'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) production crew can we dim the lights a little bit more
0: (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) check out the curve on that nacelle (laughs) See, I don't find any of this funny Because it all makes sense to me
4: (laughs) So what I'm getting from you Is that Jimmy would marry Gypsy Danger If it was a woman And you would marry the Enterprise If it was a woman (laughs) The Enterprise is a woman
0: Let's get this straight (laughs) A very, very gorgeous woman Constitution class refit Beautiful,
4: thank you look at those nacelles i'm suddenly picturing jack going back to that bar here on the island and trying to pick up women by saying you're as beautiful as the enterprise
0: <laughs> constitution refit in cc <laughs> one seven zero one <laughs>
1: You know, some men like cars. We just like starships over here. (laughs) Perfectly natural.
3: I'm more in the Star Wars universe. She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts.
4: (laughs) Hey, Jimmy, will get along with you, Dave. He likes himself some Star Wars, too. He's got an affection for Star Trek because he worked at NASA, and Star Trek's popular with people at NASA. But, yeah, he's into Star Wars, too. He's weird like that. Ugh, weirdo <laughs>
1: we already have one of those
4: <laughs> wait a minute dave <laughs> i mean oh, what a nerd <laughs> <laughs> we're all nerds here
2: <laughs> so for me um oh yeah rebecca's here i forgot about that yeah. hi how, how are you? you
4: what about the token girl you're terrible
2: <laughs> <laughs> so um the ships are fine and everything but i prefer my machines uh uh, I don't know. Vehicular and
4: transformative. No, no. When, okay, uh, we gotta go. Let's okay, let, we're let's moving re- right. If you ever cover the original animated Transformers movie, call
3: me. Anyway. I do. God, I wanna star scream right now. Thank you
4: soundboard to this bunker you call a recording studio it was fun trying to park uber around here i'm just saying <laughs> we're in the middle of a field how, how do you have trouble parking it's
1: called zoning regulations man <laughs> yeah. you think we care about that around here <laughs> now that we've got all that ridiculousness out of the way let's, let's get down to the topic of why we're really here nate Give us some insight on Trek, uh, Star Trek Four. Why, why do you enjoy the film?
4: Well, it's interesting because, like I said, Star Trek II is my favorite Trek movie. This, interestingly, was my mother's favorite Star Trek movie when I was growing up. And I think it's precisely because, and from what I understand, this is true across the board, this is the one Trek movie that non-Trek fans actually enjoy. Or at least it was for the longest time. That could be a little bit different now with the Kelvin timeline trilogy that we've got. But, and I think it's because this one is not as mired in, you know, in the Star Trek universe, and it's about time travel, and it's a comedy, it's fish out of water, so I think it's more accessible to the non-Trek fan out there. What do you guys think of that? Uh, I have a
0: question. we We kind of touched on this before you came on, actually. Okay. Uh, we were talking about you know how much how much reading material do you need before you watch this movie? because Dave brought up that on the one hand, it's sort of the end to this, you know, Genesis trilogy. Um, yeah,
4: actually, I was thinking that uh, it was I was actually in my notes. It's interesting to look at two, three, and four. They're kind of this mm-hmm. little trilogy packed into the middle of the franchise. Because they flow into one another very well. The first movie is very standalone, and the movies after this, you know, obviously in the same universe, but they don't have the immediate continuity with the with these three, other than the fact that there's a new enterprise. Right. And, you know,
0: the this this film, Voyage Home, really, really picks up where, you know, the events of Search for Spock left off. And we, you know, we have that first 10 minutes that kind of you know, we get through all the baggage of what happened. And I, I feel like, you know, if you were a new viewer who hadn't seen the prior two films, you'd be sitting there going, "Whoa, my head is spinning. But then once you get past that, once it gets into its own standalone story, it's it's fairly digestible. So what do you think? Do you think this is, you know, it's, it does stand on its own pretty well, or do you think the first two movies are, you know, the required reading for it?
4: I think you could go into this not seeing the other two. You're given the important details that are relevant to this movie's story in that first 10 minutes or so. And I think if you just have enough, you know, I guess, pop culture knowledge about Trek and about these characters, you can go into it with enough of an understanding of what's going on. I do think you'll get more out of it having seen the other two movies
3: yeah, and that was a really good point that G.J. had made, talking about the payoff. G.J., you, you were much more profound about it. What was it that you had said? That the film, uh, what about the, how the film just sets up
0: a series of payoffs all throughout? Yes.
4: Yeah. Yeah, which is actually one of the things I love about this. I, you know, As a creative writer, I have really been finding myself really appreciating older film scripts because... There's something about them where the screenwriters have a really good knack about how to make a really tight script that is witty and has just the right amount of you know obstacles that are constantly being put in the way, setups, payoffs, you know, stuff like that. And that, this movie, I think, is a testament to that because just when the intrepid crew of the Enterprise... Solves one problem, another one pokes up, or they haven't solved one problem yet, and another one shows up, and then they have to deal with two at the same time. It's great that way, and it also fuels the comedy that we get in this because, it, and it's it's other than really that hospital sequence, it's not slapsticky kind of comedy. It's more character driven and stems from the characters' personalities and them being an unusual circumstances <laughs> i think it's a very elegant way of putting it i didn't
0: think about that but yeah i, I mean there, there is a much greater focus on the characters and the whole like fish out of water concept as they go back in time to this really strange to them very strange era but to us you know this is this is normal you yeah know, it's just funny seeing them in this world
4: yeah which i think is interesting because th- even the film the f- since the film was from the perspective of these characters they treat modern-day you know, San Francisco like it is a strange new world. And for these characters, it is. I, that scene when they've just parked the Bird of Prey, which is almost as gorgeous as the Enterprise, I'm just saying. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the They've parked it in the park, kind of like how, what Jimmy had to do earlier today. And they have the two garbage men who are collecting their stuff and suddenly we get a taste of this strange new world with them talking about domestic issues and you know uh, and using the first batch of colorful metaphors as we'll find out later and you know (laughs) and all of that so it gives us a taste of what these characters are going to deal with and it acts as kind of this narrative gateway to you know this might be a strange way to put it, but you know, our narrative gateway to a very strange Oz, (laughs) you know, (laughs) at least for our characters.
3: Yeah. I really like that. I mean, one of the points that you touched on that really resonated with me was when you talked about like how this movie really connects uh, with you, with even you as the audience. Right. And one thing that I was kind of curious about as you were talking was, you know, the movie does go back to what would be, present day when the movie came out do you think going back to a more distant time say the 17 or 1800s or a time that was a little bit more in the future would have compromised the film's ability to connect with the audience
4: I think it would because there wouldn't be as much of a frame of reference it would have just been more of a cool time travel story and for people who are into history it it would have been fun for them but they would have been dealing with things that you know we don't have enough as a modern audience have enough of a frame of reference for because we didn't live in you know 1700s I don't know New England they wouldn't have gone to San Francisco because San Francisco was wilderness at that point so right. <laughs> <laughs> unless they wanted to go look for gold that might have been interesting but <laughs> but so I think the fact that they did that helped to ground the story and I, honestly I think broaden its appeal.
3: That's one of the big things for me is, you know, the broadening of that appeal. That's what this film really achieves by coming back to a present day time. So mm-hmm. definitely agree with you there. That's it. That's a good point.
4: We'll just ignore the fact that they're within spitting distance of the eugenics wars. Things are going to be <laughs> very unhappy very quickly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and see, that's when we get into Trek lore right there. That
4: That's what <laughs> <laughs> no one knows what's
3: about to happen.
4: <laughs> you, uh, gentlemen and lady. I uh, I I watched this movie on the on our trip t- uh, to the bunker and I think I have about uh you know like uh two or three pages single spaced of notes <laughs> that I had to highlight so like okay these are the important ones I should hit <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of it does have to do with arcane trek lore
1: <laughs> So you mentioned earlier like This movie feeling like a fish out of water. How do you think that? How do you think (laughs) that like a fish out of
4: water? (laughs) They're (laughs)
2: mammals.
4: They explain in the movie that whales are not fish; they are mammals. they they live in water.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you you mentioned the the concept of this being like a fish out of water. How do you think that feels for a truck movie? Like, do you think the dynamic works because it is a comedy? Do you think? Like the the breaking up of all the seriousness that just happened and dealing with the lightheart movie and then going back into some dark uh, details and dark topics do you think that works for Trek
4: oh I think if it's in the right hands it can work amazingly well Trek doesn't have the best track record for going uh, for comedy admittedly especially when uh, they uh, when a touch on certain subjects Hmm. They, they kind of turned into twelve-year-olds at that point, but <laughs> but no. <this> <laughs> that actually is not what I was talking about. But sure, take it that way. Trying to keep PG. I'm just saying. <laughs> but anyway, it works great. I think in this because we have such strong characters from the future. I I love <laughs> I love McCoy's rants. <laughs> when they go to the hospital, <laughs> oh it's probably the that's part it, of the movie. It's one of those things where it's you know for us things like chemotherapy and uh, whatever surgical technique that they were going to use on Chekhov. That's cutting edge medicine, but from McCoy's point of view, <laughs> it's barbaric. <laughs> and we, if if a modern day doctor went back three hundred years. He would think that things like bloodletting would be barbaric when that was considered, you know, real medical techniques. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I just love hearing him rant about. It. It's like, oh my god, these people! <laughs> <laughs> what are we living in the dark ages? <laughs> oh, these people are living in the in the, This is so medieval. I hate <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's just so great. <laughs> and he slips the the, the apparently you know. Magic pill from the future that cures the old lady. (laughs) She has like (laughs) brand new kidneys. I don't know what he (laughs) cares. You know, as anybody who has been neck deep in treklor will tell you, whatever it doesn't really matter. This is the man who invented the cure for the common cold. Can we bring McCoy back now so we can have a permanent cure for COVID? I'm just (laughs) (laughs) figure it out in five minutes. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I want that movie now. <laughs> right. right, Yeah. That was- or not, not even that movie. I want that real life. <laughs> I'm pretty sure once if McCoy
2: was here, like in this timeline and he heard about COVID, he'd be like, Oh my God, what is wrong with you people?
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny that we talk about how uh, the juxtaposition of these characters from the future works so well for comedic purposes in this movie, I don't think this could have landed if it didn't have the right writers behind it. And I think getting Nick Meyer back was probably the smartest decision they could have made for these characters because he's found a way to, you know, he, he's found a way to honor who these characters are while kind of bringing out the humanity in all of them. The, the, the down the groundedness to all of them, you know, it, it, it's so funny. There, there's just minor things here and there and you can, you can pick up on what the first line that Nick Meyer wrote in this movie was uh, <laughs> was uh, judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere. I believe we've arrived in the t- latter 20th century. <laughs> you know? And right there, the wit starts pouring off the screen because, you know, he wrote these characters in Wrath of Khan and he had to keep them grounded in a very si- uh, like serious situation, but he knew the movie that they were going for. And he made sure to to lighten up the screenplay a little bit, uh, with with out making them into parodies. You yeah. know, it's just that they don't know where they are. Like you know, Scotty at one point he uh, says, "I can't believe I've come millions of miles," and McCoy thousands, thousands, th- thousands of miles. <laughs> you know, just little things like like uh, you know, Kirk saying, "You're not catching us at our best." Spock, that much is certain. Uh, You know, it, it, it's, it's not slapstick. It's not real in your face lines. It's just wit mm-hmm. and it, it works so well. And I'm, I, I, I gotta be honest with you before this podcast, I watched this movie twice once f- to prepare for the podcast. And then a the second time to go back and pick up on all the comedic beats that I missed. <laughs> it, it, it was cause it's smart about that. It's not in your face. It's not gross. It's not trying too hard. It's not slapstick, other than the Scooby Doo run. The uh, hospital, hospital. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's just clever, and yeah. that's all it needed to be to be successful.
4: Yeah. Um, as much as I love McCoy in the hospital, I have to say, I really do think the more I think about it, I think my favorite comedic beat is nuclear wessels, <laughs> where he's asking the uh, policeman, <laughs> "We are looking for the nuclear wessels." Because And the reason that joke works so well is because this was at the height of the Cold War. (laughs) And we have a guy (laughs) who technically means no harm because he's from the future when everything is fine. (laughs) Fine now, we're fine. Yes, how are you? Wrong franchise, I don't care. But anyway, and and now he's going around asking where he can find nuclear-powered U.S. military (laughs) ships. (laughs) It's just oh good and they don't have to explain anything to you it just they just let it be and the joke might be a little bit lost on a younger audience who doesn't remember that time or you know knows a whole lot about the cold war and this era in history but still you know for those who do know the joke lands
1: oh great oh yeah
4: i don't think we even uh talked about him this much but
1: we we talk about like trek being uh Family, friends, you know, the, inter- the enterprises is their home. So to me, this is one of the funniest uh, moments in a movie is where Kirk is looking over on uh, Sulu and he goes, name, rank, Sulu, Admiral. <laughs> that
3: was Chekhov. That was Chekhov.
1: Chekhov, my check-off. dad. <laughs> but I just die laughing.
2: Speaking of Sulu, I, I read somewhere that, and they, they cut this out, but apparently there there was supposed to be a scene where Sulu meets his um, great grandfather as a kid, wa- as they're walking down a neighborhood. And I kind of wish they left that there. And and it starts out uh, with Sulu and um, M- McCoy and Scotty just walking down, and and there's this ball, and there's this kid that goes up to Sulu. Excuse me, Sarah, Could you hand me the ball? Yeah, sure. Then his then his mother and father. Uh, Uh, come out and speak to him in Japanese and everything. And and he says, sorry, I I had to go. I was like, sure thing. And then McCoy or Scotty goes, who was that? That was my great grandfather, Ikari Sulu. I kind of wish they left that in there.
0: Well, they. it's not that they couldn't leave it in there, Rebecca. It's that they didn't finish shooting it. According to Nimoy, that the, the kid that they got to play.
2: Because the kid was nervous. Yes, he was nervous and yeah. crying
0: and there was a lot of noise. I mean, at San Francisco, uh, there was a lot of improvisation going on during this movie. Like even the the cop who, you know, just stares at Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> He's asking where the nuclear vessels are. Uh, that was actually a security officer for the film. And they just, you know, Nimoy just pulled him aside and asked, hey, just just
4: stare at him.
2: <laughs> that security guard needs an Oscar. I love- <laughs> well,
4: and what, it's interesting that you bring that up because I didn't know about that surprisingly, but I knew about another interesting thing that if I remember correctly, it was scripted and I don't remember if it was just dropped for, in a later draft or if they just didn't film it. But there was an interesting plot point About Savik that they left out.
2: I think I know where this is
4: going. It explained why for some odd reason she decided to stay on Vulcan. Because they don't really explain why she stays on Vulcan. I guess the implication is supposed to be she's Vulcan, she wants to stay there, but she's also Starfleet Officer, so why would she stay? And shouldn't she have to go deal with the court martial as well in some form or another, either to testify or something? Well there was a point where they were going to reveal that Savick was pregnant with Spock's child, basically making it clear that she slept with Spock's reforming body on Genesis during Star Trek 3 when he was going through Ponfar. There's some more deep Trek lore for you. (laughs) I just have to do a double take. You don't know what happens other than the fact that they touch fingers.
0: Well, and that I'm not. I'm not familiar with you know how far the pond fire goes. We we saw the scene in Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. right? And I just assumed that whatever the mating ritual was, you know, it was it was consummated. But I'm glad they left that out. But they also left it as a
4: plot thread in case they ever wanted to
0: pick up mm-hmm. on it again.
4: I think so, honestly, for this movie, it probably would have been a little bit of a needless complication because that's kind of a big deal and you're just going to leave her and spock's baby on vulcan and not do anything with it for the rest of the movie that just seems like a weird thing to do so it was probably wise on their part just to keep the story a bit simpler tighter yeah yeah (laughs)
1: like with all the comical beats going on in this movie i can see why Like the Sulu meeting his grandfather and that were left out because, I mean, those are pretty big events, pretty like heart-touching moments where you're like, okay, we need to address this more. And, you know, with it being a comical movie, I can see why they were left out.
0: Well, it also provides more reading material that we were talking about that you'll need to go back and, and view I mean, I guess, you know, you could have just had a throwaway line. Oh, they made it. <laughs> you know. I,
1: <laughs> Rebecca, do you have any questions you would like to ask?
4: Oh, I've I have been preparing myself for this because I know how Rebecca is. So uh I'm on my A game today.
2: Actually, it's not really much of a question, more of a a revelation, an insight I have. It,
4: of course, this is—it's you we're talking about here. I would
3: nothing. <laughs> right. She's going to tell you what to feel.
4: I have listened to every episode of your show, and I started listening very early on. So, <laughs> yeah, well, prepare to be disappointed. But um,
2: <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I understand. I understand the character uh, Jillian was a viable part in this movie. Yes, she helps Kirk save. the a couple of whales and goes to the future with them. However, I, I I don't know. I noticed that her character is comedic on a sad level, and she's lonelier than MySpace. And <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh she has. A, <laughs> I mean, she has a sticker on the back of her truck that says "I heart whales." Lonelier
3: than MySpace. Can can we can we hang on that for a second? I need to back up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what? Lonelier than MySpace. <laughs> I mean,
0: I, pretty much. I mean, <laughs> okay. All right. Let the woman talk. <laughs> <I> <laughs>
2: Like I said, she has a sticker on the back of her truck that says I heart whales. It's pretty self-explanatory on what kind of person she is. When she tells Kirk that she's going with him into the future with the whales, she mentions she mentions that she she's going with him because she ha- she has nobody she's leaving behind. Well, of course she doesn't because she won't shut up about whales. Her dates have turned her down because she won't shut up about whales. She got bullied in school because she wouldn't shut up about whales. Her parents gave her up for adoption because she wouldn't shut up about whales. (laughs) Now, I don't know for sure if that was actually her life, but honestly, it it really wouldn't surprise me. Although, Although, I remember, um, anyway... I realized that there was a villain in this movie and no it's not it wasn't mankind or or the probe or the space whale or anything it, it was Bob uh, the curator of the museum he set the, he set the whales free without telling Jillian and giving Kirk and the crew an even harder time so to me personally I think Bob is a real villain of the
4: movie wow <laughs> You know, uh, uh, I once read a Starlog magazine that rated all 10 of the, uh, at that point, 10 Star Trek movies and argued that the reason uh, that the even number ones were the better ones was because, well, no, okay, Nemesis wasn't there yet, but uh, because it was when Nemesis came out, I think, but whatever. And the, <laughs> the it was because the, the Even Number Ones had better villains. They said Star Trek IV was the exception because all you got in it was whalers and the Tootsie Roll from Outer Space.
1: <laughs> Ooh, I like that one.
4: Yeah. Uh, apparently, they neglected to mention Bob. So, uh, you know, I guess we could say, uh, what about Bob? I'm just saying, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Too soon.
2: You can have Khan, you can have General Chang, you can have uh, a, a, a whoever, or Cyborg, or B- Spock's brother, or whatever, or Lacutus or the Borg Queen, but none of them compared to Bob. I'm sorry. Just Bob's the worst. Go to hell, Bob.
4: <laughs> Don't you mean go to colorful metaphor, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> Color Jeez. me metaphor, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> wow! is that like an
3: off-brand tickle me ammo? <laughs> I think we
4: found our first dress uh, based merch Dave I think you're showing your age with that reference I'm just saying
0: <laughs> I got something I, I do want to bring up uh, you know uh, Nathan we you and I we spend a lot of time watching films that use miniatures and (laughs) by, by contrast of this one, those movies want the audience to know that you're looking at miniatures, beautiful miniatures unto themselves, but the approach is more naturalistic here. Right? So Mm -hmm. I I always, you know, I always love it when movies use massive miniature sets and here we see a lot of forced uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, The golden gate bridge, for example, was, larger the closer it got to the camera but it was scaled down the further it stretched from the camera to get that that sort of forced perspective look mm-hmm. and and you know we they tried doing a a model bird of prey flying under it but eventually they just went with superimposing it because it looked better mm-hmm. um you know we don't get a lot of forced perspective in tokusatsu uh, or japanese special th- effects films but japan did play a small part in the miniatures for this movie because there's a shot where a miniature Huey helicopter, the one that Sulu flies is a motorized miniature from Japan. Oh, wow. (laughs) One of, one of the effects guys took a trip to Japan. Uh, they got one there and I, you know, I could never find if he got it from a studio or whatnot, but they shot the miniature helicopter flying over water in front of the San Francisco skyline. That was it. That was the finished effect. No, no mat shots. No compositing. They just wow. flew a miniature fly, a miniature flying over the bay with the city in the background, and that's it. It fooled me for years. It fooled
4: me until now. And and now until I- now, yeah. No, I- again <laughs> to see if I can spot that.
0: <laughs> it's just one quick shot, and it's just little miniature helicopter flying in front of uh, the bay. It looks great, and then you know, there's the whales. In this movie, a lot of the whale shots were just four foot miniature motorized, um, you know, humpbacks. And, uh, you know, naturally we have the starships and whatnot. But my question, you know, was how much of this did you know were miniature pieces? I guess you didn't know the helicopter. The helicopter. And how well, how well did you think it worked, especially since miniature work, the miniature work in this movie is a little different than what we see in most Trek movies? You know, we have helicopters, boats, whales, mm-hmm. structures. We we normally get you know the starships those mm-hmm. almost always look fantastic, but they went a little broader in this movie. How do you think it worked?
4: I think it worked amazingly well. Now it's not as special effects heavy as the previous films, obviously. The, yeah, I actually saw an interview with Leonard Nimoy where he where he actually said, yeah, the you know it's not going to be as special effects driven as the previous films had been, and I you know obviously I knew that all the starships were miniatures and uh, models and they are impeccably made models uh, absolutely adore them a lot of these other ones that you're bringing up i if i knew i forgot <laughs> and uh, so knowing that i'm just like my gosh these little things look amazing <laughs> but the, it goes back to what you were saying about how the approach particularly in American films when they were doing special effects like this was more naturalistic in nature. Whereas Tokusatsu, they almost want you to know that they're using miniatures because that's yeah. part of it. it. I think illustrates differences in culture because Americans or I guess I should say Western audiences have this idea in their heads that in order for a special effect to be good, it has to look real, which, when I mean, you stop and think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because, yeah, dragons are real, but <laughs> yeah, But you know, these starships are all real. They have to be real. But uh, in Japan and you know this very well, Jack, that special effects artists in Japan strike uh, excuse me, go for striking images as opposed to realistic ones. So they're more interested in making something that looks cool, even if it doesn't look real which is you know the opposite mentality well not necessarily they strive to make it look real and look cool in the united yeah, states yeah. you know that's the hollywood mentality and i don't think there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with either approach it's just different
0: yeah no i completely agree i uh, i mean i i enjoyed the craftsmanship in this movie of course because i love the idea of practical effects i think they look more solid and more you know hands on like you, you they, it looks like something you can touch whereas yeah. you know, say
4: the word that came to my mind was tangible
0: yeah tangible thank you and where where cg sometimes i look at a creature on in a movie i'm 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 cg is just oversaturated everything where i just feel like my hand can kind of go through it my my eye can tell if it's actually there or not whereas like the practical work uh i can always feel like you know i can put my hands on it and uh you know The addition of stuff like the miniature motorized whales and, you know, mixed with the starships and whatnot really gave this movie a very like craftsman feel to it. And, you know, I I love the look of this movie. This the the cinematography is fantastic. The lighting Mm -hmm. is great. I think it was it was nominated uh, for an Oscar for
4: cinematography. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The 1980s Trek movies definitely had a style to them yes is uh, i like movies 2 through 6 have a very distinct style to them thanks to nicholas Meyer, that they stuck to and then they started to transition away from that into a different style with generations and you know in the motion picture is its own thing unto itself stylistically although it tried really really hard to be 2001 a space odyssey <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know so, so and that's why it's this that's very interesting when you look at this you know and they you know they stuck to that style like I said for five movies and it served them well and it's you know it's very distinct and it's never really been replicated again since well Star Trek 6 obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I wanted to actually talk a little bit I don't know if you guys did it earlier or not talk about Spock's story arc in this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, go for it. We actually didn't cover that a whole lot
4: yeah because you know, spock's in an interesting place here you know he this is what what did they say it was like three months after star trek 3 i think is what it was yeah, yeah. three months yeah. rebecca
0: made the comment and they're still wearing the same clothes <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> they don't have replicators yet so you know yeah <laughs> 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 and you think they're going to wear you know those spare Klingon uniforms that's going to go well <laughs> but, but uh, no <laughs> so it's a three months after the fact and Spock has literally been brought back from the dead there's a lot of interesting things that I mean, even McCoy tries to get him to talk about it. But he's like, that would require you had a frame of reference. So I have to die for you to have a frame of reference to talk to you about this. <laughs> but we have the Spock that we know and love, but he's he hasn't fully reformed in this movie. He's not quite. There, which I think is interesting, so we this is a Spock that to me feels even more Vulcan than he normally does, and he has to get in touch with his human side again. and you know he's not thinking about things in this movie you know, th- you know in terms of emotional attachments or anything it's, it's very cold in a way the, he's only thinking analytically throughout. All of this, you know, and he doesn't understand things like the colorful metaphors and like he understands the modern day Earth culture even less than everybody else, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I have a feeling the rest of them at least have some sort of a frame of reference because it's their planet, you know, and their history. But he knows even less and he's obsessed with over he obsesses over little details and he misses you know, the mundane obvious things right in front of him you know he looks at a map and he says i have calculated that the route we need to get to is to go through this 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 and all of that and kirk just sits there and looks over he's like oh uh, uh there's two humpback whales named george and gracie we should go over to this place and get them so how did you know that logic and he's you know <laughs> all of, he's missing all of it he's far too focused and he has to learn Again, what friendship means, because the fact that his friends did what they did technically isn't logical. They did it because they love Spock. And he doesn't quite understand that yet, because I have a little quotation here from one of my favorite authors of all time, C.S. Lewis. I believe it is from The Four Loves. And he wrote Friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. So yeah. Spock is learning that, okay, friendship may not be practical, but it's necessary. You know, and that's why you know we have the nice little moment when you know McCoy's he says, I can't quite get the calculations right. And McCoy says, Well, I guess you know, you're just going to have to guess. And Spock says, guessing is not in my nature. And McCoy says, nobody's perfect. You know, it's just these little things like that throughout the yeah. whole movie that tells Spock it's okay to not be exact and to use a little bit of intuition, which is why, honestly, I think the whole Kirk-Spock-McCoy dynamic works as well as it does. Because... McCoy is the passionate man, Spock is the logical man, and Kirk is a combination of the two. That's why he has to consult both of them to try to figure out how to solve a problem. And then he may go with one solution or the other. And if it goes toward one side of the spectrum over the other, he kind of annoys the other one, (laughs) you know? And. So and then that's also why he has to kind of be the referee when the two of them butt heads. So, you know, it's gene it's simple in in its genius that way. So seeing Spock come into his own and then you know, this comes to fruition when he stands with the rest of the crew, even though he doesn't stand accused and he says, you know, these are my, you know, my friends, my comrades, I'm standing with them. So it all comes to fruition in a nice quiet moment at the end of the movie. That's uh, that's really deep. I yeah. like that you
1: brought in that C S Lewis quote. That's
4: <laughs> so have I have successfully one up to Rebecca? <laughs> you
1: very well may
4: have. <laughs> well, hold, hold, hold on, let's at Rebecca, <laughs> I mean, yeah. what do
2: we think? <laughs> I loved it. So yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. I, mean, I, think, I think we need to give Nate an award here or something. Yeah, there we
4: go. <laughs> <laughs> What's what this? What's the C.S. Lewis book, uh, Four Loves? The Four Loves. I believe that is from the Four Loves.
2: Okay, I, I need to find that one. This uh, you
4: just gave her more ammo to use against us. It is the best book on the subject of love I have ever read. It really is.
2: Hmm. Well, then I better find it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> he also, uh, uh, when it came to friendship, he had this really cool line where he said that friendship is born when one person says... Oh, you, you like this, too? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what
1: I've, uh, I've realized when I joined the podcast community. I was like, oh, I have friends here. <laughs> These are my people. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that was my experience the first time I went to a convention and again, when I started podcasting, because suddenly I started connecting with other podcasters, and even podcasters who are outside of the Kaiju community, I would just—I uh, was making friends with them just because we were podcasters.
1: Yeah, i, I definitely I felt the uh, same thing when I went to my first con. Somebody was like, "Hey, I like your uh, Reverse Flash costume." I was like, "Oh my god, thank you!" <laughs> like, I'm seriously touched here. <laughs> My
4: friends, we've come home. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long voyage, I'm just saying. It, it involved us traveling back in time and collecting whales. You know, It was, <laughs> it was interesting times. I already live a storied life on the island, and Jimmy, don't get me started, Jimmy's working on an autobiography right now called The Warrior in Space. He keeps talking about his little storied life, I'm just saying. <laughs> Looking forward to your book, Jimmy. He pleased apparently
1: (laughs) Well I think that wraps up our topic Seems Rebecca has a new friend
4: Uh (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll give you Jimmy's email address But you can follow him on Twitter I am contractually obligated At the risk of being shot into space To tell you to follow Jimmy on Twitter don't do it. It's a trap. It's a trap. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> hey, wrong franchise again. What am I doing?
1: So I think we're going to uh, move on to our poorly pitched here. Uh, Nathan, you are more than welcome to take a guess at it. Uh, Dave, Dave had it last time. Uh, yeah. I don't think you've heard it this one. So Dave wants
3: to take it away. Last time we had poor weather conditions disrupt a grocery store trip.
4: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say it because it's too I, easy for I'm me. I'm not going to say who's it either. Gonna, who's going to take a stab? Nate. I have an answer came to mind. Okay. The movie I haven't seen, and I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to say The Mist.
3: Bingo. Yeah. than right <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: well,
1: oh, any well, fruit, Dave. I gotta say. <laughs> So, so uh yeah
0: <laughs> yeah that was <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> a couple episodes ago monsters versus men gave us one and and we we didn't get their reply back as to what they were oh no <laughs> we're like, so we no, just guessed <laughs> no we but we got we got children of men we got
4: children of men oh i was gonna uh, say i'm gonna tell you right now when i when i listened to that episode as soon as he was done, I'm like, it's children of men. I, I didn't even have yeah, to tell it it's, it's children of men. I, but, but the first I one, that maybe years ago when I figured it out, the, the,
0: the, the first one that they were talking about, they were talking about kaiju like creatures and it threw me off, but it was actually Toy Story that they were.
1: <laughs> it was Toy Story? <laughs> what? <laughs> well done! Wow. Well done! Oh my gosh, that's clever.
0: So Nathan, you got at least when, when you're when you're done here, if you wouldn't mind shooting an email or a, a, our way, and we'll look at it on our next episode. If you've got if you've got a poorly pitch for us, oh I do. All right, <laughs> oh
1: wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All
4: right, hit us with that poorly pitch, Nathan. All righty then. No, Jimmy, we're not using the movie based on your life. That's too obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Only Jack would have gotten it, probably. But that's, you know, people would expect us to use that one. I'm just saying. Okay, (laughs) so here's what I got for you. Because it's Tuesday, a hyper-patriotic American soldier goes AWOL to lead an international ragtag team of road warriors into Southeast Asia to rescue hostages being held for ransom by a quirky dictator. (laughs) Of course, Jimmy, uh, I'm getting to that. And somehow, and somehow this plot will help the dictator bring about his new peaceful regime, wherein he will print his own money. <laughs> wow.
3: Okay. Wow, wow, I like wow. how you d- describe him as a quirky dictator.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't even know where, what? <laughs> that,
1: that just happened.
3: <laughs> because it's Tuesday. <laughs>
1: Because it's too... <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly something to think about.
0: <laughs> All right. All right. Poorly pitched. Well done, everyone. Nathan from the Monster Film Vault for poorly pitched. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well done. <laughs> and now we are going to move into Fanboy 50. Nathan, you are more than welcome to jump in if you've got anything to rant about for the Fifty.
4: I do have one. All oh, right. Wonderful. Let's guess. Go first then. Okay. Yes, Jimmy. I know I talk fast. <laughs> All right. Three, two, go. Due to a combination of mandates from the board's executive assistant, Miss Perkins and Michael Kaiju Groupie Hamilton, I've been burning through some Power Ranger seasons as I archive them in the vault, but it's been selective and out of order due to them leaving Netflix. My favorite is In Space because it has great heroes, excellent stories, and the best villain. For the last time, Jimmy, I'm not crushing on Astronema. Zeo is (laughs) solid, but was ruined by Turbo, which has everything wrong with it, like Diva Talks. The creators do try to course correct halfway in, but I won't be returning to that slog anytime soon.
1: Oh, you still got some time.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and now your time is yeah. up. <laughs> that was all I had. <laughs> Holy crap. You just made my day. I, I, now I really want to talk Power Rangers.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm particularly suspicious why Miss Perkins was insisting that I do this. Not only that, she insisted I start with In Space. I'm not quite sure, but I'm glad she suggested that because In Space is fantastic.
1: In space is the way to start. I got to tell you that. It's unfortunate
4: you watch Turbo, though. Well, when you're stuck in the Megalon crate on the Japanese mainland for no apparent reason, and that's the only thing you can get on your phone, you got to do something. Touche.
1: <laughs> Who's up next? I'll go. All right. Run it to your mark. Set. Go.
0: All right, so we are recording this episode on the day that the Godzilla vs. Kong trailer came out, which I can't talk about much because Nathan hasn't watched it yet, <laughs> but it's a <the> thing. <laughs> it was priority
4: to record this first, I'm just saying.
0: <laughs> and then uh, I've also I've been watching on Netflix the, the TV show Bridgerton, which is, uh, from best I can tell, a- a Downton Abbey meets Gossip Girl, so I can't really recommend it, but... Um, been going out at it on some video games recently, older video games recently, Dragon Ball Xenoverse with uh, some of the drift here, and we've been having fun on that. Uh, I've had to relearn some controls, but I enjoyed uh, going going at it for a few hours with uh, JR and Reb and Dave the other night. The other night time. Uh, ah, well, okay.
1: Then. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect ending. That didn't yeah, happen really, very I, often.
0: I know. I know. You got me. Not (laughs) (laughs) mid-word.
2: I'll go next.
1: Alright. Oh. Dos. Go.
2: So, I'm playing this game I got for Christmas, Ghost of Tsushima, and I am loving it. I cannot put it down at all. It's basically, uh, when I played the Spider-Man game, it took me at least a little over a month. This game is probably going to take me a little over two months to finally finish. It has side missions and uh, side missions within the side missions, side missions within the side missions within the side missions, side sections. Uh, and then there's the main title story, and um, there there are three there are three parts to the main story. And so, and I'm finally on to the second part of the main story, uh, Act Two, where I have to uh, save and liberate uh, my home castle Shim- Shimura. Stop.
1: So, so Rebecca, yes. Does this mean you fin- finished Final Fantasy?
4: I, was I knew was that. that. <laughs> I was about to ask. <laughs> okay, guys. This is the Final Fantasy.
2: <laughs> I, I was really hoping you guys would forget that, but clearly that
0: never No, she hasn't. She hasn't finished it yet. I'm so mad at her.
1: <laughs> as soon as he said Ghost of Shashima, I was like, wait a minute. She talked about this a while ago. Hey, she also have another video game?
4: In Rebecca's defense, I haven't finished Final Fantasy 7 either. Thank you, Nathan. The Thank remake. You. I finished the old game, but I haven't finished the new one. Thank
2: you so much. Oh my god.
3: All right, Dave. You ready to rock? I am all right, and I am all ready. All right. Runner to your mark. Set. Go. Still baffled that deferential wrath of rusting markelite cannon is an actual thing and not made up. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw that out there. Marklight.substack.com also a real thing. Pretty cool. <laughs> Anywho, I've been reading the the new High Republic series from Star Wars. The first book, Light of the Jedi, by Charles Soule, is a lot of fun. I'm really digging it, and. Much like G, I've been going to a place from the past. I've been re-watching Hercules The Legendary Adventures. Oh. God, I love that show so much. It is absurd. Kevin Sorbo is like one of the most over actors in that entire series, and it's wonderful. <laughs> and it's actually they actually get mythology closer than everything. I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs>
4: You're right, Jimmy. It was legendary journeys, not adventures. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was still I have a taste of what I have to deal with every day at work. I'm just saying.
3: <laughs> I was still tripped up on deferential wrath of a rusting Mark Light. Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still Sorry. teaching myself to say that.
0: All right, Jerry, you ready for your fanboy?
1: Yes. Here we go. Runner to your mark. Set. I'm go. go. I'm not a runner. Godzilla vs. Kong trailer dropped today. That is all. <laughs> <laughs> go watch it now. So you, As you of still, this episode it dropped. You should have watched it already. You fail. <laughs> you still I still got 30 you.
4: seconds. I prioritize you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong. You should be thanking me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jared, do I bank your time because we're at 35,
1: 36? <laughs> How are you guys today? You guys doing all right? I enjoyed your fanboy 50s. They're really cool. Uh, I, I got to watch Hercules again. <laughs> Nate, I really like Power Rangers. I'm still trying to get yeah, through. Yeah, all right. Uh,
3: time, time. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Nathan, why don't you
1: give us some shameless
4: plugs? <laughs> Of course, because at least on my show, an episode would not be complete without shameless self-promotion. It's practically my spiritual gift. But anyway, I am the host and curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through Tokusatsu. You can catch us on all of the podcatchers. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. You can also follow us on social media, on Twitter. We are at the Monster Isla 1 because Twitter is weird. I've already mentioned Jimmy's Twitter. You also have to follow the my Orwellian overlords, the Monster Island Board of Directors at the Monster Isla, oh at Monster Isla BOD. And now apparently the general of the board's army of lawyers is now on Twitter. His name is Raymond Martin and yes, that name is as genius <laughs> as you think it is. And his Twitter (laughs) handle is at M-I-F-V underscore legal team. (laughs) Oh, wait, no. Uh, M-I-F-V legal underscore team. That's what it is. Excuse me. And the podcast is also on Facebook and on Instagram. We have a Twitch, but I almost never use it. I think I've covered everything, and if you're interested in my not-kaiju writings, my author website is NathanJSMarchand.com. Yes, I had to use both of my middle initials because NathanMarchand.com was already taken. I'm going to find that guy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Pop quiz, Dave: Is everything he said real or fake?
4: <laughs> 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 and then, yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Nathan March and Seven, and I have a professional Facebook page that's called The Worlds of Nathan March, there. That was so <laughs> all great. right. Just That's published. a lot. <laughs> also, I just published a new book with my uh, co-written with two of my friends, Nick Hayden and Aaron Brosman. It's called Zorzam and the God Who Devours. It's about a barbarian cooler than Conan.
1: <laughs> Wonderful! Sounds amazing.
4: <laughs> Got another book to read. <laughs> I can give you about eight. So. <laughs> Well, Nathan, we thank you
1: for coming on and joining us in this conversation of Star Trek today. It was such a pleasure to finally actually get to talk to you.
4: Yeah, <laughs> When it's not, uh, you, know, uh, te- you know, texting on social media.
1: <laughs> yeah, when, when we're not having some kind of Twitter war. <laughs> That's Jimmy's you,
4: apartment. You too, Jimmy. With everybody.
1: <laughs> and uh, we thank you viewers for joining us on our topic of Star Trek The Voyage Home. If you like what you've heard, I'm Jr. You can find me on Instagram at littlemancosplay. I'm also on Twitter. You can find me there at littleman__says1. And
3: I'm Dave. I do another geek podcast with my wife called Pizza and Parsecs. And if you want, you can check us out at pizzaandparsecs.com. I'm G.
0: You can find me on Twitter at Man And you can also check out my... A uh, Substack called deferential Wrath of a Rusting Markalite Cannon, only available in the Mirror Universe, at markalite.substack.com.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thing is, and I'm
2: Rebecca. If you want to check out my artwork, you can find me on the Linktree app, linktr.ee/reb.hudge.
1: And we are the dress base. You can check us out. You can check our show out at bit.ly backslash Or you can check us out on all your favorite podcatchers. If you like what you've heard, share it with your friends. Say, hey, what's up? We'd always like to hear from you, and we answer back. Nathan, would you do the honors of signing off for us? I would
4: love to. Always stay strapped.
1: Woo! <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bye
4: y'all!